Hey guys, and welcome back to another solo podcast. This is solo number 18. We are 18 episodes into these solo podcasts. I am still enjoying them just as much as I was when I started these. So yeah, still loving these podcasts. As I've suggested it in weeks prior, we'll be getting George back on soon. We'll be doing a little bit of an update together. Perhaps we will even do that next week, so you can look forward to that. George is most likely coming up to see me on Monday, Tuesday and potentially Wednesday, so potentially doing three sessions together uh, up here in Birmingham, um, or I might go down to him. We've not confirmed that yet, but whatever happens, uh, we'll try and hook up and, and get a video film together, maybe even a, just a brief update on him or even a podcast together and a Q&A, something like that. We'll get that done. Um, I'll definitely look forward to that. George's prep is going fantastically. He's at the point now where he's being told by everyone else that he's too lean. So basically he's on track, <laughs> which is awesome. So yeah, I'm and, and loving, loving life at the moment with regards to where I'm at because I've got lots of people getting into the competitive season. I've got people that are six weeks out, people that are three weeks out. I've got Martin in peak week and we're, we're chatting every day and he's got striated glutes and it's like, yeah, it's just super, super fun. It's my favorite part of the year is when I'm like up to my neck in work <laughs> and uh, and I'm just like doing peak week programs. I'm like nonstop and uh, it's just, I just love this so much. And, uh, you know, I, I've obviously said it plenty of times, but I just really do love what I do. And uh, it's, it's great to see it all come to fruition in, in, the, in the actual sort of putting people on stage part. Um, even if it's the end of a fat loss journey, that motivates me just as much. Um, to see someone who's gone from A to B um, and has just got an incredible change and perhaps it's even been life-changing um, and uh, you know I've had some people that some of my clients that are lovely and uh, <laughs> all of them are lovely what am I talking about but yeah some of them are you know, extra lovely and say that you know I've, I've you know made a really really positive impact on their life and their relationships and um, uh, you know those people know who they are and uh, I can't I can't attest to how much that means to me it really does mean a lot to, to say that I have that kind of impact impact on some people uh it's just fucking awesome it's just fucking awesome uh you know from my little my little standing desk in my room i can have that sort of impact that's bloody cool right so rest of rest of sort of updates on me as always i hit 189.4 pounds uh, in body weight and, and for for people that for all you bodybuilders that are above 200 pounds you're probably like ah oh, you pussy push up more uh, but for me, that is uh, that is the heaviest I have ever been. Um, and not that weight means everything. I'm not really chasing scale weight whatsoever. I talked about that in the last podcast. In terms of when I get to 190, would I push more? Is 190 a number? It's not really. It's just like, for me, it's an accountability tool. So getting myself to 190, I know I could, like from how I looked at like 186, 184, I knew that I could get to 190 and not look bad, basically. And still be in a position where... I am, you know, with relevance to biofeedback, with relevance to sort of like, you know, body fat levels, I'm still in a position where I'm growing efficiently. So I knew that I could get to 190 and still look all right. And I've, I've pretty much done that, you know. So I'll do some posing updates uh, tomorrow in, in very standard lighting when Danny does her posing updates. We do them at the same time. So I'll do those tomorrow. Um, we'll see where we're at and uh, ultimately make a decision as to where I go next because uh, I'm pretty much a 190 now. Obviously, I'm going to tick that 190 off. Even if it takes like eating a Domino's or something one night before <laughs> one night before the weigh-in, I'm going to tick that fucking 190 off because I told myself, I told a few people actually I'd be at 190 by my birthday and I've fucking done it. And uh, I don't, I don't, I don't lie, you know, I don't, I don't ever lie, I don't ever sort of sort of make up these body weights, um, 
take a picture of the scale if I want, like Steve Hall. Ah, <laughs> oh dear. I love Steve, by the way. People think I've got beef with Steve. I've got no beef with Steve. We're, we're very good friends. Um, so, yeah, and he sometimes watches these as well, so maybe he'll watch it. Uh, but, yeah, honestly, uh, very happy with that, where things are at. Um, the one thing that I have noticed with being at this body weight, so for those that don't know, I'm about 45 pounds above my last stage weight, so I'm pretty, pretty heavy. Um, I've noticed some significant changes in my general energy. Um, it's down. So most people think, oh my God, like you, you must be eating so much food. You must have so much energy. And yeah, I mean, some, some days I, I feel good. Some days I feel all right. But most of the time I, I don't feel that good. Um, the reason why I don't feel that good is, is because when you are carrying a, a lot of weight and it's not necessarily like, I can't, I can't even, I can't even understand how really overweight people feel. They must feel horrendous. Um, but when you're like pretty high above your body fat set point, you are going to start to feel like different. Um, just as you feel different when you're very below your body fat set point, when you're very above your body fat set point, you're going to feel different too. So I feel different. Um, I definitely feel like I need more sleep. Um, so I, I do struggle a little bit to sort of wake up and get up in the morning when I'm on prep and I'm like, when I'm lean, my body seems to be very efficient. Um, I, I will go to bed at the same time. I'll switch off like that. I don't have really any struggle with sleep when I'm prepping. Um, just the nights, the couple of nights before the show, um, I struggle a little bit with just like nerves and excitement. But other than that, I'm fine. I just sleep like that. I'm like a baby. Um, well, a good baby <laughs> when it comes to sleeping in prep and, uh, when I transition into sort of higher body fat, I wake up and I'm, I'm feeling a little bit beaten up from overloading sessions. Of course, overloading training exists in an off season. It doesn't exist so much though, the end of the prep. So training doesn't have that huge sort of systemic fatigue that we're creating from our overloading sessions. Um, so I wake up feeling a bit fresher when I'm actually dieting. Now I'm just feeling like, I'm feeling waking up like not feeling so good. Um, but as I get halfway through the day, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm good now. Um, I can get to sort of my efficient state um, and then, you know, around about midday, I'll need like a, maybe a, a bit of a break from, from work or that, that point I'll usually go to the gym and then I feel good again. And then obviously after the gym, I feel like it takes me a little bit longer to just get back into a relaxed state, um, and get back sort of back down to a baseline heart rate, etc. Uh, than it usually would perhaps when I was prepping, um, or, or perhaps when I was even a little bit leaner, it just feels like things take a little bit longer which is understandable in the sense that, you know, recovery and just, just general fitness might be a bit lower at this stage, which is something that I will think about as to whether if I hold this body weight, perhaps it's it's worth introducing some CV activity um, to perhaps improve fitness. But again, like I, I just literally want to put all my eggs in one basket when it comes to maximizing my gym sessions and my overloading sessions in the gym like I don't really want to do anything that's going to take away or perhaps take away from what I'm able to perform in the gym so that's my current goal at the moment is to sort of see where the next couple of months take me uh next week uh it's my birthday pretty much it's my birthday weekend next weekend so uh me and Danny are going to Belgium which will be super cool so obviously I won't be doing a part, I might do a podcast on Thursday, but the amount of work that I'll have on Thursday, I probably won't do it. So hence why I'll do one at the start of the week with George. Um, so that'll be, that'll be cool. But yeah, that's, um, that's something to really look forward to. And we'll take a few days off with that as well. So that will allow just a couple of days of rest and relaxation and just basically going and enjoying a holiday like we did when we went to New York. Um, so yeah, I feel very lucky to be treated to that. So that's awesome. And uh, yeah, other than that, things are all good. 
Um, we've obviously got a weekend in between my birthday weekend and then Body Power. So if you're coming to Body Power, I will be there. I'll be on the A-list stand uh, all weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Me and Danny will both be there. We have both got people competing at Body Power as well. So we'll be in and amongst the sort of the stage area uh, where we'll have clients competing. Um, so that will be awesome. I think Danny's client is doing the PCA show. Uh, my client is doing the uh, UK Up show. So I've got Connor Crompton competing, who's CWC Fitness on Instagram. So if you're not following him, follow him. And he looks absolutely fantastic. So really, really excited to get him on stage. Um, and Danny's client, Amy, looks awesome as well. So yeah, we've got some cool stuff coming up. Very exciting. So that's probably been the longest update on me so far. So I am going to get into the questions to not leave you guys and girls bored with my update on me. <laughs> so uh, I've got the questions out in front of me this time. Instead of just rolling through my phone, uh, what I've actually done is just selected questions out of the hat, uh, so to speak, at the Instagram hat. And I've put them into my notes tracker so I can just get straight answering them rather than having to flick through my phone and get distracted. And also what I've done this week is I've picked out questions that I think are really, really good. So I don't have to sort of like shift through any ones that I don't think are great. So I'm going to answer the questions that I thought were really, really good. Thanks again for an amazing bunch of questions. And I hope that these help you guys. So three, first things first, um, three biggest things that I've learned through sort of being in bodybuilding or at least competing in bodybuilding. Um, three of the biggest things that I've learned about myself was actually the question. So I think ultimately when you when you do compete in bodybuilding and you do get down to those very, very lean levels in body composition, you learn what the human body is capable of and you learn how far you can push yourself. Now, this is something really interesting because every single time I do it, every single time I do it, like legit, I always look at other things I could do that are just ridiculously extreme. And I don't ever think like this in the off-season. In an off-season phase, I'm just like bodybuilding, bodybuilding, bodybuilding. Don't get me wrong. When I'm dieting down, I am very much obsessed with the goal of bodybuilding. Very much obsessed with winning shows. Very much obsessed with, with doing my job as a bodybuilder. But I do look out. I, I, I remember last time I was like, I think I was following... Um, Maybe it was last year or the year before, um, but maybe maybe I'm wrong with the timescales on this. But I think I was following at least someone. It might have been Ollie, Ollie Carson, who did an Ironman. And I remember thinking, why 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 don't I do that? Like I remember just comparing myself. Like I was thinking, like why don't I like do like long distance cycling or long distance running or do something ridiculous where I can push my body? Because you realize, like prep is like this this gate that opens. And once you get like striated glutes, hamstrings in, like you get all body fat off and you're like doing crazy high cardio, you're like pushing yourself on low food, you're getting some nights where you're restless, like all of these things. And then you step on stage and you win, you get that reward. That reward stimulus makes you want to do more of that, it makes you want to do like more different things, more extreme activities that you could push your body even harder and harder and harder and harder. And it's it's a crazy, crazy experience. So from from my perspective, I think what's what bodybuilding has really brought me is this idea that you can you can latch literally like slam your body through some wacky stuff, obviously with uh, some sort of ethical approach behind it. But nevertheless, like you can really, really push your body um, in a lot of directions. And that's super exciting. So that's one of the biggest things I've learned. Um, 
it's given me structure, it's given me this like work ethic and dedication that's applied to my work, my business, and I think that it's paid off. Um, I think that the understanding of if you put in something, you will get rewarded. It's like JP said several times, if you work fucking hard, you can't fail but not be a good bodybuilder. At some point, you will be good. If you just continue working and working and working and working, you will have to be good at some point. Um, Even if it's on the amateur level, you will have to be good. Um, Something will come of it. If you keep putting in the work um, and you don't do anything stupid like continuously diet or something like that, you know, as long as you keep working away sensibly, smart, uh, you will get somewhere. So it's the same with work, you know, same with business. If if you keep applying yourself and you keep pushing hard, you know, like one of my uh, friends, probably one of my best friends, Jack Piad, fantastic example of that. You know, take, take us back like a year ago, he had realistically like no business, realistically no clients. And now he's like, absolutely rammed full of clients getting inquiries on a consistent basis and he's just made one of the best decisions that i think he could have made in terms of just not advertising anymore you know like he was advertising a lot and i and i you know i didn't didn't sort of say anything to him or anything like that but i you know i put out put out a post recently about sort of the fact that good coaches shouldn't need to advertise and uh, the one thing that I admire about Jack is he does when he when he reads something he takes it on board and that's the thing that I think a lot of coaches lack you know they're very one track minded they're very single minded he Jack is quite open minded you know as much as maybe people think that me or people like Jack aren't open minded we actually fucking are um, very open minded willing to take on board criticisms or comments etc um, and he's done that within his business now like he won't I if he if I see him advertise I'll call him out on it <laughs> uh, but he won't he won't advertise he has no need to advertise he will get inquiries he will get people coming in why because he's doing a fucking amazing job and you know if you like that's one of the things that i think um you know lots of coaches need to take into into perspective is just do do a fucking good job um and you will just get people keep keep coming in keep coming in keep coming in um so that's something that i think is another sort of thing that i've learned um finally i think let me think uh, I think I've learned the importance of your 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 network, your circle, your your people around you, um, who is behind you. Um, not literally, not like an innuendo, but I think the people that you surround yourself is extremely important if you want to progress as a bodybuilder because you have got to have quite a lot of intrinsic motivation, but also some extrinsic motivation by the people around you. Um, I think when I, uh, well, to be honest. I think one thing that I'd like in the future is a pretty consistent training partner who is very similar to me in terms of work ethic, very similar to me in terms of what they want out of things and where they want to be. And I don't care if they're, well, ideally I'd like them to be stronger than me because I have something to look up to, but uh, I don't care where they're at in terms of progression as long as they want to work hard. And that's something that I would like because sometimes going to my sessions, I'm like, I would like a spotter here. I would like someone that knows how to spot me. And the amount of times that I've like had shit spotters and just things like that. And like, that's one of the things I would actually like. It's not really answering the question, but it's something that I would like. Um, applications link below. No, I'm joking. Um, but yeah, seriously, I think that the circle, the, the people that you connect with, um, your support network is just ginormous. It's just massive. It makes such a huge difference to everything we do. It's fundamental. Um, obviously, without being soppy, having Danny in my life is just a, a massive, massive movement forwards on that. 
because uh, she definitely supports everything I do. Um, when I have a little moan, when I have a little like getting upset about something, she's sort of there to keep me on the straight and narrow with things. So um, I think that that's been a, one of the biggest things that I've learned in a positive way recently. So yeah, I hope that answers your question, Tyler. Um, and actually you had a secondary question, which was just as good as the first, which, you know, these are the questions that I think that it's great that you're asking them, Tyler, because you're thinking, you're thinking like, okay, what, what's going to help me? Um, there's a lot, a lot of people that like just ask random questions that like, if you really think about it, they know the answer, or if they really think about it or look into my content, they'll find the answer. Um, but these are just good questions that can help a lot of people. Um, so the second question from you was the most challenging thing when I started coaching. So I think the most challenging thing was just the idea of the, um, and this is actually something that Sasha asked, um, in terms of like the imposter syndrome. So I really had this quite significantly when I started coaching. So when I started coaching, I was a little scared perhaps that people wouldn't trust me because of my age, um, that people wouldn't trust me because there was different ways to do things and perhaps my way wasn't the best way. And if I look back at some of my protocols when I was that age, of course, they're nowhere near as good as what my protocols are right now. But that's what what is called learning, you know, and I think that people need to realize when they're getting into coaching, as long as they're doing things ethically, and there's, uh, there's plenty of fucking coaches out there that have way too many clients that are not doing things ethically. So if you're a coach and you're starting out, your fundamental bottom line value needs to be treating people ethically and doing things right. And if you do that, you'll set a good name for yourself in the industry. Um, and you won't get people chatting behind your back about the shit protocols that you've put out. Um, and if you're the first one to admit when you've done something wrong or when you've done something like not so good, that's perfect. And I've admitted that several times. I've even admitted that on podcasts where I talked about my previous junior clients and the, you know, that the, the things that I wasn't quite happy with there. And that some of the, some of that I think was my fault. And I placed blame upon myself on that. And that's fine because I've learned from it. So the most challenging thing fundamentally was imposter syndrome, thinking that people wouldn't trust me and putting out content and always like, I always had like a little bit of like a little iffy moment when I like press that button to publish it because I always get a bit worried that someone was going to watch it and like call me out and say something was wrong or, but the thing is you don't need to worry about that. It doesn't, doesn't matter if something's wrong. Like if, if something's slightly wrong and you've put out a piece of content and someone tries to correct you, don't like, don't just go, oh, fuck it, I'll delete the post. Don't do that, you know, just take on board the comment, the criticism, um, you know, you know, don't step out of your lane when you're a new coach either, um, because I think it's quite easy to get carried away with all the stuff, like, there's so many knowledgeable coaches out there at the moment, and, you know, it, 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 it makes me very happy that some people think that I'm very knowledgeable, but trust me, there's, there's people that are a lot more knowledgeable than me, and I stay in my lane. If there's if there's a question or something that I don't know, I learn it. And I, I've done that every single time I don't know something. And every single time I don't know something, I'm pretty quick to ask someone that I think knows the answer. And I think that's a trait that all coaches should have. Find someone that knows the answer. Trust people that can give you really, really good critical answers or criticisms on your own content. And I think that's going to lead you forwards in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, that, that's really sort of what I found most challenging, Tyler. And to break through that, you just need to have confidence in continuation of putting out good content, getting people to trust you with the fabrication of your own amazing results. And like I've said, good coaching, being a good person, 
Um, and being good, a good coach doesn't mean you have to be a brain box. It doesn't mean you have to be the most knowledgeable person on earth. It means you need to be personable and it means you need to know how to coach. You know, there is coaches across all fields of sports and some of the best coaches aren't necessarily the ones with the most knowledge. They aren't the geniuses. You know, it takes a certain personality trait and it takes a certain level of skill to be a good coach. Um, coaching is a skill and coaches, coaching is a learned skill. Um, but it's also something that I, I do believe is you either have it or you don't. I do believe that with a coach role. You need to be more of a leader than a follower, in my opinion, when it comes to coaching. Um, you need to be someone that can that can just sort of stand your ground and be able to dictate in a way that's also a partnership. So it's, coaching is not a dictatorship, it's a partnership. You get together and you work together on things. And if you haven't got that ability and you're like purely in a dictatorship role, you're gonna see issues. Um, but likewise, if you're too much of someone that's trying to develop a very soft-hearted partnership, you're not gonna get results. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to bodybuilding especially, you need to be quite stern and quite very bold in your decision making. And some of those decisions uh, take a lot of guts because you know you're putting through putting people through like a lot of tough stuff and you've got to have the guts to be able to make that decision and say look you're doing this you've got to do this to get to the given goal let's fucking fasten your seatbelt and let's go and a lot of the time like people don't have the ability to fasten the seatbelt and that's cool and they're not set for bodybuilding at that point and that's fine you know um but that's why you need to sort of have a an air of uh, understanding who you're coaching um and having the confidence to be able to dictate that so yeah, hope that answers your question, Tyler. Next question comes from Jack. It's a bit of a jokey question. Uh, so Jack asks, uh, when, when and where are we going away? Uh, so yeah, for, for any, anyone that wasn't following me, Jack, at the time that uh, I was down in Brighton, uh, we went to Prague together uh, at the end of my 2017 prep. Um, and I was still very, very fucked up with diet fatigue. So we didn't have as much fun as we'd probably have now. Um, I think if we went away somewhere on like a lads trip, who would like to see a, a lads trip? Uh, me and Jack going away and uh, putting it all on Instagram. <laughs> I think people would appreciate that to be honest because we have uh, very similar humor if, if anyone was following us back. So just before my 2017 prep started, we were very close, um, going out most weekends and uh, I think it was when Snapchat was quite popular, to be honest, and we were still, like, we were Snapchatting um, most evenings when we'd go out, and the people used to love that. It used to be quite comical. Although we used to worry that our, our feeds was just becoming complete and utter rubbish. <laughs> uh, but then again, there's some, like, influences or, like, whatever, fitness it accounts on Instagram that is like quite a lot of comedy and uh, to be fair I think comedy now and again on a story can be quite fun uh, it shows the real people behind coaching like it's all well and good being Mr. Serious all the time and like having every post being super serious but I think showing a bit more of yourself and showing a bit more of like real life is actually quite good now and again so yeah perhaps um, perhaps we'll do that uh, so Robert asks I think it was Robert that asked the um difficulty of getting an actual pro card so the difficulty of getting an actual pro card in the uk is crazy hard like it's the most difficult thing you could possibly look to do uh, the reason why is because you have to win the british 
you have to win the overall at the British to win a pro card. Uh, sometimes it, in the UK DFA, there's been one occasion where the thing is, there's no set in stone um, with the UK DFA. There's no set in stone winner of the pro card. So you could win it if you're in one of the categories. Like, so for example, um, has been one lightweight that won the pro card but didn't win the overall at the British final. But that's because they deemed that lightweight to be a, a pro standard. And from my perspective, I mean, Lee would correct me if I'm wrong, and we'll do a podcast, me and Lee, at some point. Um, Lee Kemp, who's the run, uh, the owner of the UK DFBA, uh, the main run, the main man. Um, and uh, he, uh, yeah, he, he, he will, amongst the other judges panel, um, dictate who is ready for the pro card. So if, for example, a lightweight got to the, you know, got to the overall, was in the overall and was good enough for the pro card, they might offer him that, that pro card. It didn't happen last year. Um, Ali Stewart, the, the overall winner, the heavyweight, won the pro card. I mean, it usually happens that the heavyweight wins the pro card uh, or wins the overall, so to speak, because usually when it's bodybuilding, you look at, okay, ha- who is the biggest who is the most muscle? Who is the most balanced? Who is the most symmetry? Who is the most proportions? And if you get a good heavyweight in a good class of heavyweights that's shredded to the bone and has already won his class, he's already going into the overall the biggest. So like it's very hard to beat a heavyweight when you're a middle or a light because you're already smaller than the heavyweight. Unless you've got amazing symmetry, proportions and balance um, or, or just disgusting condition. Like for example... Um, you know, and a very, very good example of that is Brian Whitaker. You know, Brian Whitaker has won the overall at the WMBF Worlds as a lightweight. And that, that is just unheard of. That's ridiculous. Um, that's absurd, you know, to, to, to do that at that level. But why why did Brian do that? It's because he is absurd. Um, he is one of the most absurd bodybuilders. If you, if you haven't seen Brian Whitaker, search Brian Whitaker into YouTube or Brian Whitaker two weeks out into YouTube and you will see what I mean by absurd. That is absurd. That is the most, probably one of the most conditioned natural bodybuilders you will have ever seen with good proportions, with good balance, with good density. Um, and I very, very much hope to see Brian back on stage at some point. He has had a pretty shit time recently, I believe. I think he has had, uh, I think, either very big knee surgery or like a complete replacement or something like that. So yeah, I, I hope that he's, uh, I'm pretty sure I heard on a recent podcast that he's getting much better and that he'll be back relatively soon, maybe not on stage, but he's getting back to full health at least very soon. So that sounds super exciting. So yeah, very difficult, Robert, but it's not impossible, is it? So not impossible for you, not impossible for me. Um, so if we get a fucking head down, mate, hopefully we'll be on a pro stage together in the, in the future years. I'm sure, I'm sure we will, um, because we've had a very similar, very similar career so far. So, uh, yeah, uh, look forward to seeing you on stage whenever you next up on stage, buddy. Thanks for the questions as always. Um, so next question is, will I ever co- coach natural, comp- uh, enhanced competitors? Sorry, will I ever coach naturals? Of course I will. Um, so will I ever coach enhanced uh, yes, uh, funnily enough, I, I, I would and I will uh, and I do. Um, I already coach one enhanced competitor who's competing in the PCA uh, this weekend. The reason why that occurred is because he came to my seminar. Uh, he literally he sat at my seminar, listened to my seminar on contest prep, uh, which I will do another one later in the year on. And he said, 
I want you to coach me and I want you to be the only guy that coaches me. And I was like, okay, cool. What show are we doing? And then he was like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not natural, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I said to him, okay, cool. Right. So if you tell me what you're doing with protocols and you have someone handling your protocols and you have the awareness of what you need to do from a health management perspective, and you tell me if anything changes with your protocols and you let me know what effect they're kind of having so I can learn as well, then I'll go, then I'll be fine. And it's worked amazingly. It's worked amazingly. Like, uh, I, I would do it again, but I would try and learn more about the drug side of things and I'd probably get a consult set up um, or speak on Skype with someone like Callum or Luke, etc., or even um, Joe Jeffrey. I'd aim to speak with one of those guys who I deem as some of the most knowledgeable in the industry based on their results and uh, just the generally what I've heard about those guys. Um, I've listened to a, a fair few podcasts. I mean, obviously, I'm not invested in the topic because I don't foresee me wanting to go down that route for a long, long period, um, at least until I was a, a very established natural pro, which is going to take several years. So I just don't see me going down that route. But if I can open up my doors to more people that want to work with me that are enhanced and I can do that well and I can do that maybe better than some other people that don't have the knowledge or, you know, don't don't want to invest in doing things right and doing things well from a health perspective, then I'm more than happy to do that. But I think my niche and my uh, sort of select clients at the moment is definitely down the natural route and that's what I want to do the most of but if I can be a all-round coach like a coach that can deal with anyone and everyone I think that would be that would be a good thing you know that would be a thing that and if I understand more about the complexity of um, exogenous hormones then I can probably understand more about what's going on from in some instances in a natural perspective and I can help more people. So the more people I can help, the better. So yeah, I uh, my answer to that question is yes, and it's changed, and that's cool because I I don't I don't mind changing my answers to things. In the past, it would have been a, probably a definite no, but doing this process um, with my client Martin um, has been absolutely fine um, and something that I would do again, but ideally with a bit more knowledge my side. Um, but obviously, I'm not in control of any drug protocols with him, so. I don't necessarily need the knowledge at the moment because he's got someone else completely handling that for him. Um, so yes, 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 yes. That is the answer. Um, so next question, fixing a pec imbalance. How would we go about fixing a pec imbalance? So first things first, uh, if we see a significant issue with strength on one side versus the other, We'd look into doing some single arm movements is as simple as, as I could put it. Um, and whether that's on a machine, whether that's even, uh, I mean, you obviously would not be doing that with a barbell, um, but ideally it would be on a machine, uh, like a hammer strength machine. You could quite easily do a single arm based movement as long as you could lock yourself in. Um, you'd have to go higher rep ranges with this, of course, and try and match both sides. Um, the other thing you could do is seeing a physio um, or seeing an osteo to try and work into why there is some sort of pec imbalance and why there's something going on. I mean, usually it's very rare to see someone that's like perfectly symmetrical side to side. And I think a lot of people look too deep into this thing, kind of thing. Like, they're like, oh my God, my left quad is a bit smaller than my right. And they, they just look way too deep into small imbalances. So... Also, you've got to, like, this is another thing that's interesting that's not really going to fix it, but it might fix it in your head, is where are you at with your body fat? 
Because the thing is, when you're higher in body fat, it's very hard to judge imbalances because a lot of things just look odd when you're higher in body fat. Like, for example, my chest looks small as fuck. My, my chest looks awful right now in terms of actual size. But that's because I do carry, like, a good amount of body fat. Like, I, I can pinch body fat here on my chest. Like, a caliber reading on my chest would not be good. Um, but a caliper reading on my back, I can't, I literally cannot pinch back fat at all. I have no back fat. And you wonder why I look lean in my back shots. It's because I literally have nothing there. Um, and, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, contrast to that is that, you know, like, Jack, again, to mention him, like, you can literally, like, grab body fat on his lower back when he's deep in his off-season. And that's why his back doesn't look so good in the off-season, because he's carrying a load of body fat there, you know. So... Um, do you have a lot of body fat on your chest? Is it like hiding the ability to notice whether there's actually a true imbalance there? Or, you know, like, where are you at? If you're super lean, you diet down, you notice an imbalance. Of course, there's, there's probably an imbalance there. Um, there's probably something going on. But for the most part, just check where you're at with things and, and go from there. And that's probably the best advice that I could give. Um, like I said, physio, osteo single arm movements um, and make sure if you're doing single arm movements then you're looking at it from the perspective of okay i'll, I'll, I'll start with the um uh, weaker arm and i'll match it with my my stronger and not trying not to do more with one arm versus the other uh another thing again is sort of like pre-activation work as, as well i think that would work well for one side that's potentially growing faster than the other just activate both sides and get on um ready for every single sort of chest move you do all right so next question should you hype yourself up for every set or should you stay calm so the thing is, the amount of neural fatigue that you will gather by caught, by getting so fucking hyped up for every set is just ginormous. Like, you will be so absolutely gutted by the end of your session if you hype yourself up for every single set. Like, if you if you got a set on a leg extension and you're, like, crying before the set with, amount, with the amount of emotion and, and fire and anger that you're putting into that set you are literally going to get home and be an absolute car crash. So I think that a hype for a top set should be high. You know, you should you should want to, to be hyped. You know, you should want to, to be progressing your logbook. Um, and that's where, you know, the emotion can come in. It can fuel a set. You know, Jack Thorburn said it himself on his story the other day. You know, people don't take into perspective how much emotion can fuel a set and it really can you know when you're angry or when you're a little like a little bit like very fired up and you're very hyped as a result that can really change a working set you know from some from like something you could maybe do for four reps you might take it for eight as a result of just being in that right place mentally um, and then for any back off set that's like accruing volume, um, so let's say you had like maybe one top set and a couple of back offs, the back offs, yeah, I mean, I'd still be amped, don't get me wrong. I mean, if I approach, like for example, yesterday I did a top set with 118 and then two back offs. If I approach those back offs, like without any hype and I was calm, they wouldn't fucking move. They'd be going nothing, they'd be going fucking nowhere. So I still need to be relatively amped for my back offs. Um, 
and of course, like when you're going through your isolations, you can be a little bit more calm. Um, I think anything that requires, you know, patterning and it's like a new movement, you should not be super hyped for. I know that sounds ridiculous, AJ saying you shouldn't be hyped for something, but I mean it because if you're patterning something new, so for example, it's your first time doing like a, I don't know, like a deficit RDL or a barbell RDL, it's your first time doing it in a long time. If you get hyped, the injury risk is just really, really significant. And it and it the thing is, like, also you've got to look at hype from the perspective of like, you know, what is relative intensity giving us? What is working our intensity up? Obviously, you know, if we're really, really hyped and we get out an extra few reps, it's taking us into a position where we're recruiting more muscle fibers, we're uh, creating more mechanical tension. And of course, from a process of hypertrophy, we're putting ourselves in better grounds. But if we're getting so hyped that we're really, really, really seeing neg- a negative effect on our recovery curve, like our stimulus is so great, our recovery and adaptation is much slower, and we're not able to get into another overloading session for a longer time period, we're taking away from one of the most fundamental things that's going to cause hypertrophy. Uh, as much as we don't like to talk about it, volume is a pretty fucking big precursor for hypertrophy. If we're, if we're not getting inadequate volume, we're not going to grow as efficiently as someone who can. So that's not to say that I'm saying, you know, like leave hype on the table and don't get amped up for your sets because you're not going to, you know, do enough work. But realistically, if you're not recovering because you're just doing so many sets to, uh, to a, too close to a proximity of failure or you're working up so much neural fatigue that systemically you're in the gutters, you're going to really shortchange yourself on hypertrophy. So do question yourself. Like, is it worth yourself getting that hyped up for every single set? Are you getting inefficient volume? Is four work sets for your quads really enough to grow your quads? Are you, like, you're not Jordan Peters. Um, like, you know, Jordan Peters can elicit way more intensity than you, most likely, and also use way more load. And load is such a big factor in your volume. So do question yourself there, you know. If you're doing a 100kg squat and you can only manage one set because you're only you're so hyped up, you've not really got in much efficient volume there. You know, so do do question that. Do question that. All right, especially if you're in a prep as well, where all of this neural fatigue will have such a great effect on your ability to recover throughout the week. Um, so yeah, do, do do definitely question yourself there when it comes to hype. Hope that answers your question. So next question is on cutting and muscle loss. So he asked really like how to stay sane. Well, the reality is, like if all of us held on to every single ounce of muscle tissue when we diet, then, I, I mean, I, obviously you're going to lose some degree of muscle mass, but I think the reality of actually losing lots is very slim. Um, Steve and uh, Mike Isretard did a podcast on this recently. It was very good. So I recommend you listening to that because the reality is like, we're not going to lose a ton of muscle when we diet. Um, as long as you're maintaining, um, you know, decent amount of volume within your threshold to your maximum recoverable volume, and you're putting in adequate periods of time where you're coming off the gas to then go on the gas again, whether it becomes uh, whether it becomes an issue with diet fatigue or training fatigue. So you're coming off the gas, whether it be training or diet, and then you're dieting, you're going forwards again. So you're setting yourself up in a position where you're maintaining maximal muscle mass. 
then I think you can definitely stay sane in knowing that you're doing efficient volume to get through, but you're also managing your rate of loss in a sense that you're not losing it above a percentage of your body weight per week. And that's a general recommendation. So let's say, you know, I start my diet at 190 pounds. I wouldn't lose any more than 1.9 pounds per week if I wanted to stay in a position of maximal muscle retention. Um, so yeah, just make sure you set yourself out with enough time and you're patient and you should be in a position where you retain quite a good degree of muscle mass with no real side effects of that either. Um, so yeah, retain strength in the gym as much as you possibly can. Retain volume in the gym to a degree. Obviously, volume will most likely come down to a degree as you diet because your MRV will drop based on the fact that your recovery capacity is influenced by your caloric intake and your stresses, and stresses will normally be a bit higher when you diet, at least to very lean levels. So as long as you're appropriately suiting your volume to the phase, um, so for example, some of my clients, when they diet down, if I'm starting to notice, like for example, one of my, one of my clients, Simon, uh, I've recently changed his split, so we're having more rest days because he can't recover, and that's just a sign that you know the the intensity is eliciting in those sessions um, is is very very good, um, and he's able to get away with potentially doing a little less um, and still retain obviously maximal muscle mass, but also make sure that every session he's going into mentally fresh. You know, don't don't forget how important it is to enter sessions mentally fresh. Um, because if you're mentally fatigued, you're, fro you're foggy, you're going to go into sessions with a poor approach. Um, so yeah, just remember that. So uh, I've also sort of saw the time. I'm already at 40 minutes, which has flown by. So I'm not even halfway through the questions that I put out. So we'll just see if I can get through some of these uh, shorter ones a little bit faster. So GDAs with pre-workout meal. So I'm actually not currently using a GDA. Um, my blood glucose is fine without one, to be honest. Uh, it's very stable. But if I was to use one, and I have used one in the past, when would I use it with my pre-workout meal? Personally, I'd actually take it about 20 minutes before my pre-workout food. Um, because the whole goal is not... I wouldn't take it after because... I, I mean, I, I, I personally wouldn't do it. Because I, I deem the goal of taking a, a GDAs to lower blood sugar before you have an increase in insulin. So before you have that insulin spike, your blood sugar will already be lower. Um, so you're ready and your your response to that carbohydrate meal is perhaps better than when it's already elevated. Um, so that that's my opinion. I would have it before. Um, obviously there's various ways you can do this, but yeah, I would have it before. Um, I'd see how you get on with that. Uh, if it enhances pump, if it enhances, you know, uh, your response to that carbohydrate meal in terms of not feeling fatigued or foggy after eating it, um, that's something that maybe why I'll introduce a GDA again is because I am starting to feel a little bit of a, a drop off after eating a carbohydrate-based meal, like my blood sugar is rising a little bit too high and then sort of maybe pivoting back down a little bit too fast. Um, and that's where you can put fats into play as well to try and balance that out um, and have you sustain that energy for a little bit longer without having any, any drop-off. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, GDAs with the pre-workout meal, 20 minutes before. Um, and then I wouldn't have them with your post-workout meal. Um, because the whole goal with the, the post-workout meals, you should already be in a place where your blood sugar is fairly low and your receptiveness to the carbohydrates is fairly high in that post-workout sitting um, because you will have already, well, 
training in itself will raise blood sugar, but because you've already like somewhat depleted glycogen stores when you train, um, if you finish your intra workout about three quarters of the way through your session, you should start to then see as your heart rate returns to baseline, um, and you see start to sort of clear the effects of training, you should start to see your blood sugars drop in that post-workout window and be ready for your post-workout meal. Um, so I wouldn't take them there. All right, cool. So hopefully that answers your questions on GDAs. Next question is on accuracy of off-season food. How accurate should we be? Um, I personally think you should be very accurate, to be honest. Like, why shouldn't you? Uh, the only reason or suggestion that I would think as to why you wouldn't want to be accurate is in the sense that, okay, let's say uh, you got to the point where, you know, in your off-season, you, you've hit a caloric intake, which you know provides the weight gain that you want. You know it provides the consistency of, you know, recovery. You know it provides the consistency of, of performance. Um, you just ride that intake out, and you just keep keep having the same foods every single day. Um, and, like, that's where I think, you know, maybe not using my fitness pal every single day is fine because you've hit an intake that works, and you can make small tweaks as and when you need it. Um, should you be weighing out, you know, your block broccoli and weighing out your lettuce and things like that? I mean, it's up to you. I, I, I personally don't do those things. I, I just take a, I take what's on the packet and I trust that it's, that it's in the packet. In a prep, I'd be weighing out my broccoli, you know? And I think there's something to say that, I think there's something to say that, you know, when you're in an off-season phase, switching off a little bit to some of the meticulous things that are involved in tracking is quite a beneficial thing to avoid uh, and I mean, I know that it's it's sort of a word that I, I use lightly because we enjoy this so much that I don't think there's any reason why I would. But to avoid a degree of burnout in the sense that you've done the same thing for so long, like when you transition to a prep, the motivation to weigh out your broccoli is maybe somewhat diminishing. Um, so I, I would say personally, and I encourage my competitors to sort of you know, realize that the off season is a time where you can be a little bit more relaxed, but still not switch off completely. I think too many people switch off way too much and they just don't track and they eat out way too frequently and they start seeing their progression stall or, you know, perhaps they're not showing up on stage with enough improvements and they question themselves as to why that's happening. In my opinion, it's a pretty clear answer as to why that's happening. They're not being consistent enough. They are not tracking their food. They are not being, they're not being any of the things that they were doing in a prep that was yielding them such great progress. So a lot of the things that you do in your contest prep with regards to accuracy and with regards to nutrients will cost transfer into your off-season. A lot of people think it doesn't. It does. It does make a difference how you time your nutrients around your workout perimeter. Um, it, it does make a difference how you plan out your your day-to-day -day meals. It does. It does. You, like, you can't just pick up crap and just wing it through your days in an off-season. Like, it just doesn't work like that. You know, And that's half the reason why people get piss-poor results in their off-season is because they're nowhere near as consistent as they are when they're in the prep. So don't get it twisted. I'm not saying, like, come off the gas. I'm saying that you know you need to you need to have a bit of a dimmer switch on this process. So, you know, for me, the dimmer switch will be slightly turned down when I'm in off season phase. Um, you know, if when I go to on holiday with Danny, for example, you know, I will, I will not be bringing my scales with me um, to to weigh out my foods. Like I just I won't do that. You know, but if I was prepping, if we were both prepping, like we'd fucking bring the scales. We'd bring the body weight scales. You'd bring the bloody weighing scales for the food. We'd bring everything. You know, but there's a certain degree of like, does that really matter in an off-season phase? Like, no. Um, and, you know, it was almost like refreshing to see someone like Thorburn, for example, when he went to FIBO Expo. I think 
his followers would have really appreciated the fact that he was able to still do FIBO, um, which I think was one of his first trips in a while. And, you know, you saw that he was like still in his routine, but it wasn't like his absolutely pristine routine. And would that would that two days have affected him? No, it wouldn't have fucking affected him at all. Um, maybe mentally, but physically, nah. Um, and I thought when he actually came back and he took some images when he got back, I thought he actually looked better. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's just my opinion. And that's the importance of like controlling stress in an off-season phase as well. Just like coming off the gas a little bit, I think can be a really beneficial thing. So just remember the importance of that. Um, so next question is on supplements and traveling abroad. So the couple of times where I have sort of obviously traveled abroad, taken supplements, I've put them all, most of them, in my um, hold luggage. So the reason why I've done that is because I just want to avoid any uh, chances of them being taken away at either customs or security. So I did just put them all in my big hold luggage. I put my protein powders in there. I put my creatine. I put, I put everything in there when I went to Boston, pretty much. So um, in terms of like you know, when you, you like short haul trips... When you're only taking hand luggage, um, just make sure that you put a label on them, um, or ideally take them in the actual tub. Um, at the end of the day, like if they search them and they take them away from you, like cool, fine. But the thing is, if you're legitimately just taking whey protein and you're taking it in like a, even if it looks dodgy in a in a baggie powder or whatever, like, it, like the thing is, if they searched it or did whatever searching mechanisms they do to find out whether it's like drugs or not. All it's going to do is they're going to find out it's whey protein and they're going to give it back to you or they're going to seize it, whatever. You're not going to be in trouble for taking whey protein through customs. The only thing that you need to be careful of is, like, I mean, none, none of your supplements will really have water in them, but you're obviously not allowed to take in any fluid. Um, so, yeah, no fluids. Um, and there was, like, an issue with one of my friends once who took, like, a pre-workout and, like, got stopped, but... Uh, I don't know. Um, I most most of the time, if you can put them in the hold luggage, you'll be absolutely fine. Um, just again, just be really cautious with liquids and things like that if you're taking them in the hand luggage. Um, but you should have no issues really, and like put labels on things, and you should be absolutely fine. Um, but it is a bit of a pain in the ass, especially when you're prepping and you want everything to be bang on, and you know you have to take everything and you have to package it all up and. Oh my god, it was a nightmare taking it all. Taking it all to America with me was probably the most, like, one of the most stressful things ever. Because I just wanted to have everything perfect. Like, I have all my sleep supplements. I have like, my creatine. I have my whey protein. I wanted everything bloody perfect. Um, like, and it just, it was just a lot of packing. And when you're lean, oh my god, <laughs> it was, a, it was a little bit stressful. So, um, but. I'm sure I'll just get better and better at this as, as time goes on and I'll be able to give more uh, accurate information as, as to how you can do this yourself. So yeah, I hope that helps. So next question is how to get lean or sorry, not how to get lean. How lean should we get when mini cutting? So I've got a few clients mini cutting at the moment. Um, and to be honest, I like to see like a really good full set of abs and I like to see sort of like good striations to the delt, striations to the chest. Um, obviously, it's very individual dependent. But I like to see someone where I'd predict them to be like 10 to 15 pounds above a, a, a potential contest weight. Um, females closer to 10, males closer to 15. And that's at the point at which I would think, okay, cool. We're in a position now where we can really raise calories and get out of this. Um, this is not personally what I would do. 
it depends what what phase you're in um and where how long you obviously got left over your next off season etc like i'm not going to be dieting down to 15 pounds above stage weight because that's not that's not productive for me um where i see sorry excuse me where i see people needing to diet down to that level is when potentially we're not pushing as high as i'm pushing so a lot of my clients like won't push as high as i'm pushing um only i'll have juniors maybe push as high as i'm pushing but anyone that's not a junior won't be pushing as high as i am as high as i am because they wouldn't look good um and it wouldn't be beneficial um they would feel really really bad pushing up this much and it wouldn't be beneficial like i've said so we can afford to bring them even leaner when they're mini cutting down so yeah i think that's where i'd where i would take people to be honest to get into a good position but it is very much like don't take those numbers for uh solid values because it is very much a individual thing and some people will look leaner at specific body weights some people carry body fat more evenly than others and that affects their ability to look good at certain body weights so just take that all into perspective when i've given those numbers um you know it's like for me for me for example okay so i'm like 45 pounds above stage weight uh, the the realism is i'll probably get down to like 30 pounds above stage weight in a mini cut um and to start a prep i'd probably want to start a prep from anywhere between 25 and 30 pounds above my last off seat my sorry my last um contest weight because then that allows me enough time to lose at a nice steady pace to get into condition uh when i want to um or by the show dates basically so yeah that's my answer on that one but don't take those numbers as solid values um how often should we drop food when dieting as often as you need very simple question and very simple answer you only need to drop food when you need to drop food so if you're losing at the right pace and you know like let's say you have a week where you don't you make a change you see how that change takes an influence over the course of one week um and then you review again okay have we dropped? Is there any reason why we haven't dropped? Where is stress at? Where is stress is at? Where is sleep at? Um, where are all my other feedback variables at? Have I got them logged in a spreadsheet, etc., etc.? Hopefully I have. Um, and then I will take all those data points on board and then I will make a decision based on whether we should make another change or not. So as often as you need, take your data, understand your data, review it, and then make a change based on what the data says clients ghosting you on payments so what happens when a client ghosts me on a payment um this never happens because they can't um because i set all of my clients up on go cardless or paypal on a recurring payment so it's a monthly payment that always comes out if it doesn't come out i'm the first to know um go cardless or paypal will tell me that the payment hasn't come out and i will immediately message them if i get no response to that message coaching is done um you know if there's no 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 response within you know a week of that message then coaching is done simple um they don't get any coaching anymore um if a client has ghosted you on a payment and they're not like so for example the first thing that happens when someone signs up with me is application form application response set up the payment and then when the payment's set up that's when i start programming so i don't program until the payment's set up um then i start programming then they get their program the payment's already confirmed by that point so they can't ghost me on it and they can't ghost me on it as it continues because i'll just get told that they haven't paid um and obviously the way it works they pay for a month in advance so don't ever accept payments at the end of a month for a month of coaching 
Like, because you wouldn't buy, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get a product and then pay for it after, would you? So you, you, you buy the product first and then, you know, then, then you get the product. You wouldn't buy the product. You wouldn't pay for the product after having it, you know, unless there's some weird financing option going on with your coaching. So yeah, make sure you're charging first and then getting they get the service second because that that's how it should work that's how every product system works um yeah so that's what i would say there don't and obviously just trust comes into it as well like so if there's someone that i think is like a bit shady and i'm like i'm not too sure about this then i don't take them on board as a client but obviously some people can't be as selective as that which i understand so next question is i'll take on natural drug testing procedures so what is the procedure for drug testing in natural federations so they're all very similar um usually it works like you'll have a urine analysis at a qualifier and a polygraph at a, at a british final so that's usually the sort of the hierarchy of steps um in the u.s it's a bit different i think they do polygraphs for absolutely everyone at every single show um especially with the imbf at least so yeah bmbf is uh, if you win your class you get urine urine analysis um that obviously gets sent off to their labs they send it back if it's all fine you're all good um and you go to the british finals then you get a polygraph um you have like a some of the polygraphs are very different there's so many different polygraphing companies around um but i i've had uh three no four polygraphs in the time that i've competed um yeah three with the bmbf yeah three three with the bmbf and uh one with the mpa so far um and uh and i've obviously been urine analysis with the uk fba and i would say that the so the like the i've had like ones that are i'm not going to name which ones are one which ones are which because i'm not sure i have the sort of place to do that um but i've had some that are an hour long and i've had some that are like five minutes long so that's the difference you know there's a lot of difference in between polys um of i i'm not clued up on polygraphs so i don't know which is more accurate i don't know whether there's any accuracy differences all I know is you just got to go in there and be honest and that's it. Um, and you know, the way that I see it is I'm, I'm so careful with my supplement selection. You know, if you ask James from a list, how careful I am with everything that I, everything that I use, um, I, I like second guess everything. So I'm like, I, I double check everything that I take. So I know that when I go into the one, one of those tests, I can just be super honest. And I know that I'm a natural athlete. Um, and that's it. That's as simple as it. So that's the drug testing pro process. And uh, yeah, I mean, some people do get, and I mean, like everyone, I think will get a little bit like shady when it comes to um, doing things like that, because they're like, how accurate is this, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but at the end of the day, you've just got to accept that it is what it is. It's what you've got to do com- to compete. Um, and there has been people caught out on these things. So You've got to just be sure that you're a natural athlete before you enter these bloody competitions. And funnily enough, some people fucking aren't, and it and it and it, and it does piss me off that people think that they can, you know, try and bypass these tests when you're obviously going to get caught out, um, which people think that they can do, which is just not right. Um, but that's the way it works. So hope that answers your questions. Um, Cool. So we're almost at an hour. So I am going to take a few more. 
So what's the best time to take vitamin C? Vitamin C I would take as far away from your training as possible as it is a pretty hefty antioxidant. Um, I wouldn't necessarily worry about this too much, but just as a caution to uh, stop the the issues that we see when we're trying to, like antioxidants have been potentially shown to blunt the inflammatory response from training, which we actually want. We want that inflammatory response to create an adaptation. So I would say just out of peace of mind and the ease and convenience of being able to do so, take your vitamin C as far away from training as possible. Um, in terms of uh, the last question that I'm gonna take, so I will take the question on approaching a show when the finals are far apart. So let's say we will do a show in June and the qualif the, the finals sorry, are in October or September. So that's a significant time period to try and stay lean. And that means that we've got to really work around that in the best way possible to retain muscle mass and get into a position where we're displaying our best physique at the end of the end, end, end of the day and at the end of the year uh, at, at the British finals ultimately, which is where we want to do our best. So in the June show, you will still be contest lean. Okay, that's a given. You will still be contest lean at the June show. To win a show in June, you have to be contest lean. So done. You've done that show. Let's say you've won. You've done really, really well. What do we do next? You absolutely have to raise calories. You have to raise calories. I would say that with that time span, so you've probably got about 20 weeks until the finals. What you want to do is you want to probably get fairly quickly about 10 pounds above stage weight. Okay, so you get 10 pounds above your previous stage weight. No more, no more than that. Nothing like 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 10 pounds, 10 pounds wiggle room. 10 pounds, you'll probably feel pretty good. Um, maybe closer to five or six for a female. But yeah, 10 pounds, you probably start to feel a little bit better as a male. You're still going to stay pretty lean. So this is still going to be difficult. Um, so you'll re reverse your calories up to 10 pounds above body weight. Uh, so 10 pounds above stage weight, sorry. You'll maintain that and you'll hold that and you'll just try and improve your training performance. So if there's any small chance you could add some more tissue, especially in weaker areas or areas that the judges said you need to improve, you improve, okay? You try and improve those body parts by hovering potentially anywhere between 10, 12, 13 pounds above that that, that stage weight. Uh, females, like I said, anywhere between five and eight. When the 10 to 12 weeks out point comes for the British finals, you start pulling back down again, okay? So you start pulling away calories from that new baseline of calories that you've worked up to that's maintained you around about 10 or 12 pounds above stage weight. You start pulling away from those calories and you start getting ready for the finals. This is a new diet. This is a separate diet. So you, you have pushed your calories up, you have maintained, and then you start dieting down again for the British finals for the second show. This is a second diet, but it's much shorter in length. And the rate of loss can be very, very nice and slow. Um, and then that can get you ready for the British finals. Let's say you have you know, 12 weeks, 10 pounds. That would be done pretty, pretty damn easily with a week of peaking. Um, and then you'll be into the British finals without looking like an absolute drown out rat because you've been dieting or staying stage lean for the entire year. So that's the way that I would do it with a client. Personally, mate, I wouldn't do June qualifiers. Um, if I had my way with all my clients, and to be honest, I've had my way with pretty much most of them. Um, I've got some people competing in June, but they might not do British finals. Um, 
then I'm not getting them to do early qualifiers because I know how difficult that time period is going to be between those shows for them. It's going to be mentally quite torturous and really difficult for them to stay on track um, and really, really just, just hard for me as a coach to make the right decisions. Um, and also, you've got to take into perspective how much of a fucking life you're going to have for the entire year. Like, if your, if your year is starting, like, for example, I see some people competing at body power and then expecting to complete all the way until, like, not October, November. Like, how much life are you really living in that year? None, really. Like, I mean, obviously, bodybuilding is super fun and we get to compete. We get to have plenty of show days and we get to take lots of cool photos. But how many times are you going out for a meal with your family? How many times are you going on a holiday to actually enjoy a holiday? How many times are you having good nights of sleep? How many times are you like having like a good compassionate relationship? Like, you know, all of these things are just like going to shit with you competing all year and staying lean all year. So really, really question yourself if your goal is to compete earlier in the year and then do a British final later in the year. Just my opinion. But I have seen people uh, like, for example, Tom Pointer is a pretty good example. He he usually always does Scottish shows and then competes at the British final. And he always looks fucking good, to be fair. Um, I mean, personally, I wouldn't do it that way around. I think I'd argue that he could look even better if he just prepped for the British finals or did a later qualifier. But, um, you know, ultimately, when people do that, it's their decision. And he still looks great regardless and still is one of the top athletes in the UK in regards to middleweights. So, um you know, we can't really fault him on that one at all. Um, but if I if I was making a decision, hence why, I, like my shows in 2020 will be the later qualifiers all the time, like every every year. Um, I will do probably the, just the late qualifiers in 2020. That'll be my goal. Um, and I don't see any reason to change that. So yeah, that's my thoughts. And I think we're going to leave that there as that is an hour and four minutes. So as always, guys, thank you very much for tuning in, listening for an hour or over an hour of my voice. I do really appreciate it. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it or share it around. Um, as always, I know it sounds like a bit gimmicky, but please, if you could like the video and uh, give it a like, try and get it to 100 likes, as I always say, that would be amazing. Comment below if you've got any suggestions. And if, you've, if you're new and this is your first time listening to this or watching me, uh, please do do subscribe and, and stay updated for, for future episodes as I plan on running these on a weekly basis as always. I've been pretty consistent this year so far and I will really look forward to chatting to you guys next week and I hope you have a fantastic weekend, whatever you are doing, um, if you listen to this before the weekend and uh, yeah guys, alright, we'll speak soon and thanks again for listening. See you in a bit. Bye.